0: This is Superlative, a podcast about watches, the people behind them, and the worlds that inspire them, spending time with the Blog2Watch community and the stories we discover. Let's get started. Hey, everyone. Ariel Adams here with the Superlative podcast. My guest today is Mr. Carl Friedrich Schaffela, the co-president of Chopard. Carl Friedrich, welcome. Thank you. We're here in person today, uh, this is a little bit unique because usually these superlative episodes are done uh, remotely, but we get to look at each other and hopefully some watches right now, and we're sitting at the, the lower floor of the brand new Chopard Boutique here on Fifth Avenue, 30 years on Madison Avenue, two different locations, now finally on Fifth Avenue, and I understand that for you that's a big deal, why?
1: Well, um, no, we, we really enjoyed our time on Madison Avenue, of course. Madison Avenue is a little bit more quiet, more uh, slow, and not so fast-paced, and obviously uh, uh, not so frequented as uh, Fifth Avenue. So, as the years went by, and we we came to uh, close to the end of our lease in on Madison, we we decided that it would really be time to time to make this move, which we we, we were always eyeing to do, and. Uh, I must say I'm very happy that we, uh, we f- well, as we found the location that we decided to, to go ahead. And that was a decision taking, uh, taken just very close to the COVID situation that we were meeting. Uh, so many
0: after. decisions to make, not a lot of predictability, hard to see the future, right? Uh, yes. But so many brands invested a lot in their core strengths. In their house, in their products during the pandemic, does that, that does that surprise you? Did you think there was going to be a little bit more wildness, or does the actual um, relative calmness that most brands seem to demonstrate during the pandemic
1: surprise you? Well, the p- pandemic taught us a lot of things that we we didn't really know about our own brand uh, and about our industry. And like what? Uh, I'm so curious. One of the important uh, takes that I, I have from the pandemic is the, the strength of uh, the meaningfulness of the watch industry as a whole, because uh, the interest, I felt that the interest in, in watches, and I'm talking, of course, uh, fine mechanical watch side of things, um, has grown during the pandemic has actually developed probably because people had more time to spend on the subject and to appreciate the subject more. Um, So the resilience of our industry was, almost came as a bit of a surprise to me as well. So we learned, of course, how to communicate on, on all kinds of digital channels. We... Uh, we learned how to, to show our products uh, in, a, in the best possible way also in, on a digital in a digital way. but we also learned that uh, all of this while it worked um, was not uh, not quite sufficient when it comes to a watch or a piece of jewelry for that matter because what you want to do is you want to touch it and feel it and you want, to uh, experience it in a brand environment. And here here we are coming back to Fifth Avenue. Um, For us, it was very important to elevate the uh, experience further. And to elevate the experience further, we decided that we had to move here and create an environment which is um, customer-friendly, comfortable at first sight, but also uh, close to what we felt was the Manhattan experience. So the interior design is exclusively done for this location. Um, And ground level, you will have a more uh, general feeling of what, You can browse without being disturbed. You can be served if you wish. And and the where we are sitting right now is the gents area where we would exhibit the uh, manufacture watches, the LUC collection, and complications and so on, which is a more quiet area downstairs. And further in my back here, you will have the uh, high jewelry. Um, Experience, um, which is even more sort of secluded and um, uh, from the the buzz that you would have upstairs.
0: I, I want to sort of recap some of the points you made because I think they're so important, especially because as the world tries to figure out the right steps with luxury, especially luxury watches, it has to look at companies like Chopard that are run by people such as yourself that don't just make the product but but you're making it for yourself. And where you decide to invest, I think is very indicative of what actually works. And I think you said something interesting about people want to come into the brand. I mean, it's it's actually kind of an irony that in the world of digital, people would be investing so much in physical locations, but the reality is people are learning online but falling in love in the real world. And so to come here and see this experience with this, you know, lovely interior design you know, lavish materials, just being in the world of Chopard is something that is very physical and and isn't online. And I I hate this word, fidgetal, you know, because it's this (laughs) cheesy term, you know, the the hybrid. I mean, of course, there's one world, right? But I think what's different these days is that our brains learn in one universe, we'll call Mm -hmm. that the the, the internet, but emotions really come still from the real world. And these are, I mean, it's, 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 it's a jewelry item meant to worn on your wrist, It doesn't deliver you pleasure outside of it being on your body, you know? But I think what what the watch industry has also come to understand during the pandemic, and I'd love your opinion on this, is that watches in large part are sold because people like the hobby of being into watches, collecting watches Mm -hmm. and participating in the hobby is I think something that some brands used to do very well and other brands maybe are are now starting to understand that it's not just glitz, glitz. It's not just exclusivity. It's making sure that people can incorporate this as part of their hobby. And when the world is kind of screwed up, as we've, we've seen, one of the interesting things, and we've seen this throughout history and the Great Depression and before that, is that great people, men and women and great families during depressed times, <clears throat> actually put money into um, luxuries, whether they want to think about their legacy or it's a diversion and a hobby. But um, again, counterintuitively, these, these moments of time are quite important for the great houses and luxury. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that.
1: Well, first of all, I think exquisite and qualitative craftsmanship, I don't consider this to be a luxury. I think it, it, is, uh, it is the basis of things that are made to last. And um, in that respect, I don't think uh, there is... Never a wrong moment on on when to spend on uh, a beautifully made piece uh, So during piece unstable of watch.
0: times where things break, people then like to invest in things made to last.
1: Yes, I think they. Are, first of all, they are reassuring because they're well made, and uh, we know that they will last, and we 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 can stand behind them, and and also it gives you pleasure in probably a, a more difficult moment. Um, so I think uh, what we were taught in 2022 now, coming out of 2020, 2020 and 2021, is that uh, even in more challenging times or different uh, times with different challenge. Um, again, our industry has fared well and and I what I really could feel this year was the renewed and, and intensified interest in uh, what I call the independent brands. And somehow, uh, even though we don't we don't match in size to <laughs> many of the small, very small independent brands, but I still consider us to be part of the independent brands because we're family-owned uh, and family-run. And uh, the approach we have, we take to watchmaking, particular in, in the manufacture side of things, is very close to what the independents are doing. Uh, and I started this uh, 25 years ago when I... Founded uh, Chopin Manufacture uh, up in Flori, and um, I think all of this is coming together uh, in 2022. Yeah. uh, At a time when you would say you could, you could say, "My God, what's going on in this world?" (laughs) You know. Let's go back in time a little bit to discuss how your family
0: got into watchmaking in the first place. Um, I don't know the story that's very well known. And I think it's going to be interesting to people um, because the best watch brands tend to come from great families. And the way they get into it is sometimes not always direct. Um, You mentioned that 25 years ago you opened up the Chopard manufacturer, but the Chopard brand, of course, is older than that. Tell me a little bit about your family and how you got into watchmaking.
1: Yeah, the Chopard brand or Mr. L.U. Louis-Ulysse Chopin founded Chopin in 1860 in Saint-Villiers, which is a, a small place in the Jura mountains, not maybe an hour and a half from, from where we are today, up there in Fleury. Um, on a parallel basis. But later, my grand-grandfather founded our company in Germany. In 1904, which carried uh, our family name, still carries our family name. Um, my father, who is the third generation, um, had the uh, conviction or the uh, the vision, if you would rather say today, that. Uh, if he wanted to succeed in in selling high high class high end watches, um, he had to he had to eventually uh, look for a company in Geneva. And did your family
0: have a manufacturing
1: background? Yes, uh, we were manufacturing uh, watches using Swiss watch movements. We even had a. Uh, representation for s- several Swiss watch companies in parts of Europe and Germany and my great grandfather was selling watches all the way to, to Russia and uh, he traveled to the US um, in 1921 um, where he, he worked in New York as a goldsmith trying to uh, earn some money with two of his friends from Germany uh, because they wanted to take a drive from the east to the west coast. Long drive. Which they actually did. And uh, so they they had they bought this Ford Model T and uh, they, they went on this drive.
0: Oh, in the 20s, a cross-country and drive. It's like grand- a John Steinbeck book. Yeah.
1: <laughs> my grandmother offered me uh, an album with okay. all the photos from this uh, period and uh, articles that they wrote for the local German newspaper about their adventure. Wow. Yeah. So that was the first kind of, uh, first time the Chauvelin family got it, uh, in touch with the U.S. market, as uh, if you wish. And... Um, So going back to to Germany, and we we basically made uh, beautifully made gold watches, some jewelry in our own company. And for the watch, it it was always uh, Swiss movements that you could buy at the time as uh, components or finished movements. Um, But my father... Uh, thought that this was not sufficient for him. he wanted to actually build a, a brand and at the time uh, the the idea of a brand in the watchmaking industry was was I'm talking about the 60s here okay uh, because he he actually bought Chopin in 1963 which uh, next year will be 60 years. Uh, basically at that time, watch brands as such didn't exist. It was more watch companies supplying to uh, important jewelry retailers like Asprey's or, and they were the brand. or Tiffany's. They were the brand. Yeah. And I remember distinctly in early days when I did my first uh, trip to the U.S. with my father, we would go and uh, see Tiffany's and we were... In beginning, making watches for Tiffany's. And then it was Chopin and Tiffany's. And at one point, my father decided if he will only offer proposed Chopin. And this was uh, 1976 or thereabouts. We we opened our first office in the U.S. at Rockefeller Center. And that was really sort of the first time that I... I came into the business and uh, traveled the whole of the United States. What were you doing uh, at the time for the company? Well, I, I had just joined the company and I went through all kinds of different departments after having done a jewel a, a apprenticeship also and, and uh, two or three years of university. I, I was attracted by the idea of traveling the world and it was a perfect uh, constellation because we were able to, you know, we're opening up new markets and, uh, and one of them being the, the U.S. So, at the time,
0: Shepard made a bunch of different watches, you know, mechanical, quartz, and things like that. And you were, you know, all over the United States. Exactly, yes. And it seems like that era had a permanent mark on the Shepard brand. Because, of course, yes. while it is a traditional Swiss brand, it's never necessarily felt like all the other ones. There's been sort of more of an international vibe. You see a lot of influence from the United States, Asia, in mm. other markets. Um, is that because you and other members of the family were so international at your, at your young part of your careers?
1: I think what we learned uh, working in the company was you know, to listen to, to the clients after yeah. all. And uh, because of the fact we traveled the world, we would get all these vibes, if you want to call it. And um, it's always important for us to think actually what would the customer would like, what would the customer like rather than what uh, can we impose on the customer? Well let let's talk about that because it's so often where a
0: brand speaks very proudly, we listen to the customer. And it's true, you can look at many brands and see examples of it. I guess my question is, what you just talked about, imposing what you want, what does that look like and why is that a bad idea
1: and why do some companies think that that's a good idea? Well, it certainly can rationalize your production if you decide uh, unilaterally what you're going to offer. And, uh, and of course, uh, anyone who who has been working uh, or planning production and knowing what pro- producing a watch really means will tell you that that's probably the, the easiest way to do things.
0: So, So this is the fight between a factory and an artist. The factory wants stable wants to make the same thing again and again, keep costs down, efficient, predictable. The artist is like, no, no, no. you got to make new things all the time. You have to radically think outside the box. You have to make things that are actually hard to manufacture, not easy to manufacture, because that's what the customer wants.
1: Well, at the end of the day, it's a constant uh, balancing act between what is reasonable (laughs) in terms of your production facility, your production uh, capacity, and between re- exclusive requests that would come from your customer base and, uh, and also uh, creative impulses that come from members of the family even. As we, we, like to, uh, we like to participate in the process. So it's a balancing act, but at the end of the day, it makes Chopin unique.
0: How do you do that balancing? I mean, you make it sound so simple, and obviously Chopard does it well. Maybe I'm guessing part of that has been this ongoing process of incorporating more and more um, manufacturing internally. Of course, 25 years ago when you opened up manufacturing, you've manufacturer, you've added more elements over the years. Does that flexibility go into that equation? Just talk about that balancing, because I think it's so important.
1: I think the, um, we're very lucky that... Uh from the very beginning, my father himself always mentioned, always insisted upon the fact that we needed to be remain independent. When it comes to our production facility, to our capacity of producing all the vital parts of a watch in-house, whether it is, uh, and at that time it was more about the uh, the cases, the bracelets, the stone setting, the jewelry side of things. And uh, I was really the one that added the movement side of things. You were? Yes, because up until uh, we founded the uh, Manufacture in Fleurier, we actually were buying most of our movements, um, or we were buying ébauche, or which we, we then um, mounted, and I, I realized that this was, uh, I, I was convinced rather that this was not going to last. Why is that? I had the feeling that uh, in order to increase our own credibility, in particular for these type of timepieces as we have here on the table. Um, Pretty high-end watches. Uh, there was no, no other direction than the one... to to, to choose, well, no other way but the independent way. And that meant uh, creation of a manufacturer for movements uh, from scratch. I I think it was
0: obviously a brilliant idea. And Chopard, with the LUC part of the the, the side of the brand, has done some amazing things, competing, especially in terms of finishing, with absolute best. Um, I don't think that was an accident, right? Like, you don't just open up a factory and end up doing it as well as, as, as some of the greats. What did Chopard have to do to quickly gain such high levels of competency?
1: Well, I think uh, looking back, uh, we were lucky that we were not. In uh, the uh, beginning, we were looking to uh, actually buy uh, an existing company that we could build upon. And At the end of the day, we were lucky that uh, there was nothing really uh, on the market at that time. Hmm. So you for- forced so, you to do it yourself. We forced ourselves to do it on our own, and kind of inventing uh, or building every step of, of the process. And uh, the very first movement, which was was already a very ambitious project, uh, you know, the uh, movement with a micro rotor, double barrel. Uh, Chronometry certified and so on and so forth um, so we, we put um, we kind of put the uh, cursor at a really high high level Yeah, yeah. but it taught us you know to, to enter immediately in the in a very qualitative way uh, which helped us all along later on when now we are, we have conceived maybe twenty plus base movements easily, and uh, uh, sixty somewhat variations. And we also launched a, a more industrial uh, arm called Fleurier Bosch, where we we luckily uh, are now making the movements for the Alpine Eagle line, but also the the Happy Sports uh, collection. So, in a way, we have come a long, uh, a long way from the very first uh, movement, 196. On top
0: of that, in a sense, it's almost like
1: the Chopard group now, because if you look at it in certain ways,
0: you have multiple brands. On a basic level, you have the Chopard name, you yeah. have the LUC name, and of course, for those that don't know, you have the Ferdinand Bertut name, which yeah. is even more high-end, and yes, a different brand, but it's in the group. Mm is this something <clears throat> that you were trying to do, which is to, cr- to 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 segment, or is there going to be sort of consolidation later? Like, I'm just wondering how interesting it is to you to have to not only make all these products, but also take care of all these different names.
1: I think you could call it an organic growth process. One thing led to another, but uh, the uh, fleurier uh, side of things where we produce the, the more industrial, I hate this word, but it's uh, the more... Uh, high volume, maybe? High volume yeah. movements, let's say. Um, and on the other extreme, the uh, Ferdinand Berthoud, which you just mentioned, and none of all this would have been possible if we wouldn't have started uh, back in 1996 with just this very first movement. Right. And uh, so... These are sort of organic developments, which uh, now all came together, and leading up to the different levels of watch offerings that we we luckily have, and I think uh, that we can safely and soundly build upon going forward.
0: Who in your family is really responsible for all these new things? Because I. You know, there's always this tug of war between let's keep doing new things versus let's do the things we've already been doing better. And you can't always do it at the same time. And I, and I think what I love about Shepard is this notion of there constantly being new things all the time. Uh, so, so tell me a little bit internally, like you know, are you the one that's basically saying, like, hey, let's, ha- let's do more things? Or are you the one being like, hey, let's slow down? Uh,
1: well, I'm, I'm a little bit more in the first camp of those who like to do new things all the time and on the other hand you have someone like my wife for example who is slowing us slowing me slowing us down saying you know let's let's finish this first and it's again it goes back to what i said in the beginning you have to find the right balance alpine eagle is a very good example there are so many variations that i either have already set up in my head or uh, already communicated to the uh, product development department, or speaking to designers about it. Um, but of course, I had to realize that uh, first of all, we have an issue with production that uh, we we can't we can't keep up, and second of all, uh, you know, we have to let the market uh, discover what we just. Uh, launched and we can't obviously launch something right behind.
0: Now that point you just made about letting the market discover, I think is the single biggest area right now because it really goes to the heart of marketing, digital, physical, and what to expect. I think for me that's the biggest challenge I see is that CEOs and leaders such as yourself aren't sure what to expect from investments. And the goal is to educate and One of the examples I like to sort of talk about is how some of these amazing models, you know, the the Royal Oak and whatever, took so many years, not because they weren't a good product, but because it took that long for people to discover and educate. There's this sort of tendency now, especially among the younger generation of marketers, to expect like immediate results. It's going to happen overnight. Everyone's going to know about it. And you know that even though, you know, uh, Google metrics are available right now. Really knowing what the market is doing and feeling can take years. Um, what exactly is your strategy on having that discipline to wait or educate your team that there's sort of more of an emotional tactile experience versus a numeric metric-based approach to deciding how to, how to operate and turn a, a luxury name?
1: Well, we are not uh, obviously not working in the fast fashion uh, field. We are uh, working. Our horizon is not uh, six months. Our horizon is more like two years, three years at a time, and at least and whatever we we decide to uh, create today uh, will probably. Exist in uh, in three, four years' time only, especially if it's uh, it's it's more on the uh, uh, complicated side of things when you look at uh, uh, watchmaking. So we're not a, we're not a doing a sprint; we're doing a marathon, and it's a constant marathon. And basically, that's something I even I had to admit and learn uh you know when i started with this uh, manufacturer uh, experience i was extremely impatient really in, in the very beginning any, any examples or stories well you know until we finally came up with this very first movement i i constantly uh, you know asked the team now what um, what uh, prevents us now from launching the watch yes, but you know, we have to test this and go back and probably adjust this or that part and, or even redesign something. And I, I, was, I was going crazy. Um, and nowadays I, I have a different attitude. I realize that these things do take time and if you cut corners, you will get caught up uh, one day or, or another. So you just have to live with the fact that in our in our profession, if you would to do things well, you have to let them develop, let them be developed with a factor of time which is reasonable. And new designs, same thing, let them be ad- adopted by the communi- community you know and this also uh, takes a considerable amount
0: of time it, it it does i mean i've spent years obviously educating people on watches and there's yeah. always those brands uh Chopard is much more well received than others of course but certain brands that no matter how hard they try mm-hmm. people just don't take them seriously until you point out like look look at what they're doing and they're like oh okay and I think with Shop which has been so fun, is that because of the independence, you've been able to play at a very, very high end, as well as a relatively reasonable, um, accessible price point. Um, and that allows you, of course, to have a lot of fun. But who do you go to for advice on demog- demographics for not you? Because you represent a certain demographic, a male demographic that loves things like cars and culture and travel but you also make an enormous amount of women's products. Obviously, other members of your family can contribute more there. But in general, where do you go to for uh, creative advice or inspiration to understand, again, going back to listing the markets, what they want?
1: Well, we are, we are lucky that we are, we are, today we are st- quite well established around the world with subsidiaries. We have a great team of uh, subsidiary managers in, like the US, but also in Southeast Asia, or China, or within Europe. And uh, we, we, we really stay in tune with, try to stay in tune with, with this team and, and try to distill what, what seems to be uh, the uh, a
0: timely. How do you get that feedback from them? Do you, do you interview them? Do you have them do a questionnaire? Like, how do
1: you get that information? but we simply uh keep a conversation going as well and uh you know it's not it's not uh in pages of reports that you will find uh the essence of things it's usually in in conversations field trips like uh, i think it was really necessary for me to come back here to to physically understand again what we're looking at in, in in the U.S. It's been three years, right? Um, that I've not been here uh, physically, and so uh, I'm I'm really thrilled. It's it's a lot of information. Uh, what are you which, saying?
0: What do you? I mean, I'm sure you've been here for a few days now, and what, what's well, going
1: through I, your mind? Uh, I th- one of the most important things I'm seeing is the uh, strong and and knowledgeable demand for uh, for watchmaking i mean real watchmaking real watchmaking it's it never struck me uh, as much as this time in in the the interactions i had and uh, we you know we we had an opening yet last night of the boutique had many conversations and i, I really said wow uh, i've never seen so many you no know, watch collectors also, uh, uh, as, as I've seen this time in a very short amount of time.
0: Hi, I'm Ariel Adams, founder of a blog to watch, and I've been using eBay to find watches for over 20 years. eBay is one of the world's largest marketplaces for timepieces. A luxury wristwatch is sold on eBay every seven seconds. And did you know there isn't any safer place to get watches? All luxury watches sold on the platform are covered by the industry's most robust customer protection policies. What makes eBay so confident is its exclusive authenticity guarantee service, which has a third party physically check each watch before it gets to you. In the United States, that's done through Stolen Company in Ohio. And among other things, it means that fakes are never an issue. eBay is also a great place to sell your watches, but you probably already knew that. Do what I do and check eBay before all of your next watch purchases. I I have to respond to that because I think that's interesting. And it goes back to what you said earlier in the conversation about what people have been doing with their time during the pandemic. We know that the casual luxury consumer who may have less disposable income will stop spending on status and start spending on necessaries. But then you have this other demographic who, for them, watches may be status, but it's also pleasure and a hobby. And so I think what you're seeing, and I've seen this as well, is this consolidation of real enthusiasm. The people who are buying watches now are not just the people who want them to show off uh, their wealth or their status, but want want them to show off their taste, their intellect, their pursuits, also to find friends. And on the media side, of course, I've been very aware of this for a while, but now it's reached such critical momentum that you on the brand side, at an event are actually seeing that, wow, most of these people here are, you know, sometimes we call them the watch nerds, right? But are these actual horology enthusiasts who are going to get more excited about how you make the watches in the long run versus, you know, maybe something more superficial? And it's so interesting to me that you are now just, this is being thrust in your face. But okay, what else did you find?
1: No, and um, I think over and above that the... Uh the hype that we're looking at in terms of watches as an investment right? uh, or wanting to buy a watch because it's so rare and therefore it has to uh, appreciate in price and, you know, all of this.
0: Strange concept.
1: Yeah. I think over and above this, if you take away all of this, see that there is a much wider audience. Yeah. And and I think that's, for me, that is... uh, Really thrilling because it it also proves that we a, as a company in the community of uh, watchmakers um, we were doing the right thing in the in the in the years back. Yeah, you, de- you definitely have. Okay, so
0: there's three watches here, and each of these is is, is a launch for right now, I believe. Um, maybe this this, uh, this the strike or is not is this one also new is new for today.
1: This is not this new is what I saw of today, today but, right? it's here. but it's here. But we have, it's we have it's a, here for the first time. Uh, okay, this really is an amazing one. Time.
0: minute repeater we'll talk about, but we have here the first uh, yellow gold version of the Alpine Eagle with yeah. a matching yellow gold dial in the 41 millimeter size. I, I love this watch a lot. And then you have a version of the LUC Jumping Hour um, with an enamel motif of the Statue of Liberty, obviously very timely. But talk about how these watches are uniquely interesting to the market right now. You said you come out with watches that make sense for the market. You listen. Talk about how these watches represent what the U.S. wants right now.
1: I think starting with the uh, yellow gold version of the Alpine Eagle 41 millimeter, I think uh, pays tribute to the fact that yellow gold is definitely back and definitely back as a more contemporary metal a little more crisp and modern in a way uh, rather than the rose gold we have been accompanied uh, we have been looking at for the past uh, 10-15 years and of course I when I joined the industry it was all yellow gold right and uh, it was no yellow gold and then rose gold was the new thing and now I'm, visit, I'm seeing the, the comeback of Yellow Gold. Um, and I must admit, uh, this watch is really stunning. And if I had to make a choice, I would definitely go for Ye- the Yellow Gold version now. And New York being New York, always uh, ahead of things in a way, uh, I think was the right the right place and time to launch this watch for the opening of the boutique
0: and the alpine eagle in general of course across the world but the u.s has done so well and i think what's amazing about this you know this watch which is in the integrated bracelet category um it's it's both unique and familiar at the same time and people who find this watch and wear it really just fall in love with it it's such an interesting thing. And, and the, the story behind it, because this is based upon a design um, from the past that you modernized, so it definitely yeah. has a lot of your own history and things like that. Um, and over the past couple of years, this has been one of the most you know, popular topics of Chopard. Has it, has it surprised you at all that the Alpine Eagle has done so well, or were you expecting it given the popularity of this integrated bracelet category?
1: When, when the, the fun design uh, emerged, I was convinced that it would be a success, but I honestly did not expect it to be so successful as we are seeing today. It's, yeah. uh, it's really uh, uh, kind of way above what I what I anticipated, and um, of course I'm I'm very happy, and I'm very happy because the. The watch is also a result of a family collabor, a unique family collaboration between uh, sort of three generations. Uh, right, uh, no. my dad um, and my son and myself. And um, you know what could be uh, what could be a nicer symbol in a family company.
0: So. No, I mean the, everything about this product is interesting, and of course it will continue to evolve with new versions and probably new things like that. But I. You know, when I see a product like this, I recognize that this was not necessarily the watch you made for yourself to wear. Your tastes are a little bit different. I think you like straps a lot more. Mm -hmm. Um, and so it was interesting, like you said, to collaborate, you know, with these multiple generations, because it is a younger generation who likes the idea of a men's jewelry watch. And that's really what I call men's jewelry watch. Because again, like jewelry, it's all about playing with the light, it's all about maximizing the material. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that. You know, it's just men, us. We don't typically like to say we like jewelry, but let, let's be honest. And I think it's very interesting that this is something which is interesting to men today. It's been proven time and time again. And I think some people get confused. Like, are people really into the Royal Oak or Audemars Piguet protect No, it's really that, that there, there is a fashionable opportunity to get away with this. And Chopard has one of the nicer ones around. and that's And that's mm-hmm. great. Will you continue to invest and develop, not into this area, but in sort of this more youthful luxury buyer?
1: Certainly. And, uh, I mean, you just mentioned it, the Alpine Eagle is such a versatile uh, playground that um, I really have to restrict myself to not introduce too many novelties at once. That's some discipline. Yeah. Takes discipline,
0: and then the other end of the spectrum here, we have a more traditional watch that really celebrates uh, craftsmanship, Um, and this is the jumping hour here. And again, this is the type of watch I can see you proudly wearing on your wrist as you walk around the city. Yes. Um, And you know, again, uh, a little bit smaller, beautiful movement here. We have the Quattro system, I believe, with long power reserve. Um, Talk about this. Talk about the technique and um, how this is a different side of the show part personality
1: well this is the i would say the you know the expression pure expression of we uh, you could say the complicated side of our watchmaking capacity but taking taken to yet another level because of the craftsmanship that you discover on the dial which is a beautifully uh, executed enamel dial i was uh, also, in, very much involved in, in introducing this technique and this craftsmanship within the company. We um, we invited a. We have now a in-house enamel uh, artisan, and uh, I was the one who who really pushed us to to get into this uh, very rare. Um, craftsmanship, ourselves, with, as I was convinced, that would open new doors to, to our design and uh, and also create more independence for, for ourselves. And this is uh, one of the... Well, that's actually the first execution of this type of enamel, which is not... Obviously, uh, you have these... Uh, metal elements in between. Close and, uh, on either, right? Yes. It's uh it's a very intricate intricate and very uh complicated process. And uh, it's the very first dial that came out uh beautifully, I must say. The watch arrived literally yesterday. Oh wow.
0: Yeah. Just you're just getting to know it. Yes.
1: And uh I can't stop looking at it.
0: It's fun to have a watch be sort of a canvas for art.
1: Yes. You know, I've
0: I've tried to advocate to so many people that in addition to sort of watches being the classical time-telling instrument, yes. it can be so wonderful for it. And so many brands have made that um, a big part of them. But with sort of modern enthusiasts, it's been a slow go at getting to understand that. And
1: here, yeah. I mean, you have the simplest and also kind of the most uh, intricate expression of time. You have just one hand showing you the minutes and uh, the jumping hour located at six o'clock because we wanted you to see the hour jump freely, not with the minute hand at 12 o'clock and then uh, the the hour would jump behind the the, the hand. Uh, that's just a, a little uh, reminder of it's a good detail. what we think of. Yeah. No,
0: you have to think about these things. And, and then
1: the whole thing is is obviously uh, running, um, powered by our quattro movement, which um, more than 20 years ago was um, was unique and still is. Yeah. Four barrels, chronometer certified. Uh, not in this case because we, we, we don't have the second hand. <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah, uh, but it's so still this the same. So kind of, of a
1: philosophical uh, instrument. But yeah. people,
0: people love that
1: stuff.
0: Yes. Another big part of the brand, we talked a little bit about this before we started the show, is how you treat the customers. Obviously, you listen to them, but it's more than that. And I think what's so important to discuss these days is the, I'll call it the product beyond the product, right? Mm-hmm. On a very basic level, people buy Chopard watches and jewelry and uh, other accessories and things like that. But they do so often because of an experience they have in terms of not only what they see and feel when they're, you know, in your stores, but how the brand makes them feel. And I think your family is a very important part of this because you know how you like to be treated. And you have, you know, many generations of this, this culture and these expectations. And you say, the people that we're selling watches to also want to be treated this way. And I've seen one of the biggest differences between these independently-owned companies like Chopard and the corporate-owned ones is this notion of clienteling. Talk a little bit about the clienteling philosophy and maybe some of the little details that Chopard does that um, people would like to know about.
1: Well, I think it, it starts with um, a greeting of a customer in, in one of the stores. You know, uh, it, it, we keep on telling our teams the most important things to make them feel totally comfortable and um, we are a family company and we want uh, the clients to be to feel part of the family um, and and that is the 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 moment they enter they, they push the door uh, until they they leave us either with or without a product i think that's not the most important thing most important thing is that when they when they leave the the boutique um they they remember the experience they had the um, the personalized uh service and the message of of uh, what we feel is important uh, has to be as be delivered and uh and i think uh, it sounds easy but it's uh, it, it's Rather complicated sometimes. Yeah, I, I can. I mean, I can sense having gone, uh, obviously, into a multitude of stores. Uh, also, our friends and competitors see how complicated it can become, and that's one of the reasons why we we um, we also uh, insisted that uh, well, we insisted in 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 not a very autotheritan way that my son uh, goes to hotel school
0: yeah he mentioned that he was doing you know,
1: that he he was doing that and he i must say he learned an incredible amount of of things there which uh you know initially when you are when i was his age in in the watch business these were not necessarily subjects that you covered or that you... uh, But as soon as we opened our own retail network, but also looking at how our partners developed uh, across the globe, uh, whether they are small family-owned companies or bigger or very big retailers, I think the level of uh, service uh, has, has come a long way. Yeah. And today, uh, the inspiration comes from uh, from luxury hotels, from resorts, from because it's it's the experience, and um, it's it's a constant. It's uh, something we constantly work upon.
0: I mean, you speak about it in a very humble way, which is which is good. But I, I want to go back to what you said about. It being not simple. You know, it's not just a matter of having a CRM, right? No. You have to develop uh, an infrastructure. You can have tons and tons of really personal relationships. And that's hard to do, right? And only as a company with a bunch of people who have an invested relationship or invested interest in having those relationships can that happen. So you have to have a complicated incentive and training structure um, to do all that. And again, it's, it's not so simple, and it probably requires... A ton of tweaking and reaching out and calls late at night and friendly reminders.
1: <laughs> I think the underlying uh, force of any of this is the passion for the product and the passion for um, our industry. Yeah, and uh, and the the knowledge acquired through that passion, not the knowledge that you acquire because. You're, you're going through multiple tests every now and then and uh, you know it has, to become, it has to come from inside and, and that is uh, a big difference. It's, again, it's a topic we
0: could just go on and on about. Um, one, one sort of final area of questioning that, uh, again, I'm, I'm curious to know what you have to say about it because one of the interesting elements of the brand has been an ethical component. It began with things like um, Fair mined Precious Stones, and Ethical Gold. And, you know, I think in today's era where there's all kinds of, like, greenwashing and sort of, like, ethical PR, it can be very difficult to, to, to distinguish the differences between companies who are actually trying to promote certain types of values and those that are doing so for maybe, you know, PR purposes. Um, and I think that Shoparda actually genuinely has a, a, a invested um, level of care in this so talk a little bit about you know what are some of these ethical practices and what are you actually trying to achieve as a brand through the through the sort of ethical side of 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 the production of luxury goods
1: you know the um what you call the ethical side of things came rather naturally to 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 us uh maybe because we are close we went relatively close to nature ourselves and uh I'm very fond of, of course, the mountain areas. But I'm also, I also grow wine, meantime, uh, in an organic way. So uh, all of this is very meaningful to, to me, and including my my sister, who, who very early days, uh, insisted on, you know, responsible sourcing of of our diamonds. And one very big uh, and important issue that came that we we pushed uh, ahead very early days was the responsible sourcing of gold because we said we want our clients to feel comfortable about buying a a piece of jewelry or a watch if it's made of gold then they should they should know that this gold is sourced responsibly and, uh, and it even contributes to the, the feel-good factor when you know that what you wear in your wrist is, has been made in the best possible way. So we started with this uh, journey in 2010 and uh, 2018 we introduced what we call the ethical gold, Only possible because we were melting and also preparing our own Mm. 18 karat gold in-house. And when we set off to launch the uh, Alpine Eagle, you know, I immediately insisted and said, now if we have ethical gold, what about the steel we're going to use for the Alpine Eagle? Uh, Can we we ensure some kind of portion, important portion of steel, which is... uh, recycled mm. and uh, sure enough when we uh, when we introduced the watch you know it's a sort of 80% recycled steel uh, with some uh, other inva- advantages actually like what well, the uh, the steel we use is is been comp- in a way processed twice which makes it uh, 2.5 times harder than normal steel and also what we call more loosened, it's more shiny. Uh, apart from being recycled. yeah,
0: a lot of people saw loosened steel yeah. as being applied. So I guess that's what you yes. mean loosened steel.
1: And this is has become a, a normal process in the company for us, and and our our teams are you know also very proud of.
0: Does it cost a lot more money?
1: Do you have to spend more on materials? Is there a lot of... I'm just
0: curious, like, practically speaking, what has to go into all this?
1: Well, obviously, uh, ethical gold comes at a slightly higher price. Right. And, of course, has to be... I mean, within our company, there is nothing else but ethical gold, so it's not a problem in keeping things apart. Right. When we started in 2013 with... Small portions of fair mined gold. We had the additional complication of keeping the gold stock separated, but now we we overcome that. Do you think most brands will follow on board and do the same thing? Yeah, I think uh, yeah there is a there's more than a tendency. I think it's it's uh, it's a well engaged uh, process, and I think it's very important. Uh, we are selling expensive. Uh, beautifully crafted items, Uh, the last thing uh, that you want is sort of an unknown uh, source of uh, sourcing. I think it's part of the journey nowadays. Yeah,
0: yeah. I I guess the last question in terms of that, is Is some of this going to come down in price, right? Because right now to get this recycled steel and stuff is definitely a premium. Is there an interest in on the more accessible models, Chopard being able to show, you know, we're not charging more, but we're offering a more ethical experience. Because I, I, I think the consumers, uh, some of them at least, are going to be warmer and warmer to this idea.
1: The different, uh, different uh, groups of consumers are uh, more or less... Of, I would say nobody is not enthusiastic. Right. But for some, and, and more so... Uh, it's becoming a necessity that the product they're, they're looking at... So like
0: they won't spend unless...
1: Exactly. Right. And that group is going is growing, uh, and the group that was kind of indifferent is getting smaller. So people have a, an opinion, and you have to at least cater to that opinion. Yes. And, and we, I mean, our opinion is clear. Uh, we want to be, uh, in that respect, also we want to be ahead of the game rather than following...
0: There is um, a lot of information that I learned about your family and about the history of the brand that I appreciate throughout this. Um, We're we're out of time, but I want to give you an opportunity to just plug anything specific. Obviously, we're here at the new Fifth Avenue Boutique for Chopard, but are there any um, other upcoming things or anything that you would like for the audience to go check out right now?
1: Well, I think... uh... What I'm, I'm very happy about is that this is our new uh, embassy in the U.S. And uh, I think, personally, I, I'm very fond of the development we recently uh, had in this market. And what I would like uh, more people, more of our clients and uh, to do is, is to first-hand Offer them a first hand experience of uh, what we are actually capable of doing and, and for that uh, factory visits are the best thing so um I wanted to underline that we are open to the factory visits uh you know obviously they have to be planned but uh if you're in flurry uh, if you're in flurry you know make sure to uh, to come and visit. That's a
0: very warm invitation, Carl
1: Friedrich. Thank you so much. Welcome. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to another episode of the Superlative Podcast. Support the show by subscribing and rating it on your preferred podcast platform. For questions, comments, and ideas, please email the show at superlative at com. For the latest in watch news, reviews, and culture, visit ablogtowatch.com.